but it's interesting. It seems like there's this whole career path of being a publicist that just exists because people screw up, right? Their publicist has said, and it's really just this person whose job it is to, to manage crisis in somebody's life. So they craft apologies to get their clients out of the doghouse. And what I've noticed is oftentimes the apologies these publicists craft are really lame. Really lame and really seem to be insincere. First, you've got the Twitter apology. In 140 characters or less, I'm going to tweet my apology. And it's kind of nice because it is a tweet, so I only have 140 words, so... I can also hide behind my smartphone, and then the excuse is built in. Well, I would have apologized in greater detail, but I only had 140 characters. Twitter really limited me. That, that, that's why you didn't see more sincerity in that apology. You've got the agent apology. So-and-so's agent, on behalf of their client, is apologizing for them. A strange thing that, that someone else has done something and somebody else stands up for them and apologizes. An odd thing. And then there's the blame shifter, right? So somebody's offering public apology and, and it goes something like this. If I've offended anyone by my comments, I'm sorry. So I'm confused with that. You're apologizing for your comments or you're apologizing that I'm offended. Am I to blame? Should I be apologizing to you that I was offended by the comments? Who's the guilty party in that one? It's not real clear. And then, usually, these apologies will have that dreaded but. So even the ones that almost, you're kind of like, this, this might be a legitimate apology. I, I I am surprised by this person. I think there's going to be some real repentance here. And then they drop, but. And then typically insert some lame excuse that undoes everything they previously said. And you get the classic old watered down, what's the big deal, quasi-apology, it skirts the issue, downplays what's happened, maybe just calls it a lapse in judgment. You know, I made a mistake. This was out of character for me. Oh, well, if it's out of character, then no problem. Never mind. Bottom line, as a society, we're getting really good about sort of saying we maybe feel sorry for things. That maybe we've done something wrong. Mostly, though, it just seems like the worst thing about the situation is that someone has gotten caught. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a psalm that stands in stark contrast. It is a public confession, a public penitential prayer. It's a private sin that had both personal and national consequences. It's actually one of the most well-known psalms. There's verses in this psalm that when I read them, they will ring a bell. You will recall them. You maybe memorize them. You maybe quote them to people. It takes place in one of the most well-known scandals, not just in the Bible, but in history. So, look with me at Psalm 51. To the choir master. A psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward, inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. King David, in light of a private sin, with massive national consequences for Israel, utters a public confession. A public confession that it says is to the choir master. A confession that's so good it's going to become a song. He's showing us that when faced with the condemnation of sin, we must turn to God for forgiveness and restoration. When guilt and condemnation of our own trespasses sits before our face, the only thing to do is to turn back to God, to seek forgiveness, and to seek restoration before Him. Now, this psalm is unique for several reasons. One of them is that in the prescript to the psalm, we get a ton of detail about the context in which it's written. Not, not every psalm has that. Most of them don't. And so, not only do we have a lot of information that grounds us in the background of what's going on when this psalm is written, the background is historically massive. This is one of the turning points of the Bible. If you had to list a top 25 moments of things happening in Scripture, this would probably make the list. This is a significant point for God's people. How will God deal with His anointed when His anointed, the one who He's made covenant with, sins in a horrible way? So we have to understand this historical setting. The historical setting takes place... In 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And we see David. A man after God's own heart. And Israel is off to war. So his armies are out fighting. And he's in Jerusalem. In the palace. And David at this point. 
has lots of wives. And as he walks along the top of the palace, he sees another man's wife bathing. And he longs for her. And you know the story. He sees Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he lusts after her. He desires her. He's the king, so he sends out his agents to go and gather her and call her to the, pa- to the palace. You don't have the option of turning that down if you're Bathsheba. You come when the king summons you. And so she is brought to him, and he commits adultery with her. And then he finds out she's pregnant. So not only has he committed adultery, but he's about to get busted. His sin is about to go public. And rather than go public with a confession and repent at that point, he decides he can do a really crafty thing and construct a massive cover-up. So, so this idea of covering up sin that we see exposed every now and then, it's not new. It goes a long ways back. So David crafts a plot. He, he calls Uriah back from the front lines Back from war. And you should keep in mind here, David is the king. And so when David sends the armies out to go fight his enemies, he's supposed to be with the army. He's supposed to be fighting as well. He's supposed to be leading the troops. So he's already sinning in a way because he's back at home in the cushy palace while other men fight his battle. So he's got to cover up the pregnancy. He calls for Uriah to come, come back and kind of receives a report from Uriah and then says, you know, go, go be with your wife. I'll, I'll cover it up and pretend that Uriah got called back and he spent the evening with Bathsheba. That's why she's pregnant. But Uriah is an honorable man. And knowing that his brothers are still at war, he refuses to sleep in his own home. Sleeps on on the front step. So now David knows he's in trouble. And so he crafts a plot. He tells his general, sends him with a letter and says, send Uriah into the heat of the battle And when he's in the heat of the battle, when it is most dangerous, pull back from him so he's killed. And that's exactly what happens. Now, part of this, to get context, is you have to understand who Uriah is. Uriah is what the Bible describes as one of the 30. So David has these 30 mighty men that are described in Scripture. You have the three, his three compatriots, Josheb, Shema, and Eleazar, that are sort of like his mightiest champions. And then the 30 are the men that storm. These are the... These are the special forces of Israel. But it goes way deeper than that. Uriah and the 30 are these men that when Saul was pursuing David and seeking to kill him, they were with him in the caves. These are the men that when all of Israel is against David, stood by his side. They fled with him. They protected him. They died for him in some cases. So this is a man who David knows intimately. This is one of his inner circle. And David has him murdered. That's the setting. That's what happened when David writes this psalm. He's committed adultery. He's sought to cover up his sin. And when that doesn't work, he has another man murdered. What do we do in the face of that? What what does David do? Well, he shows us, when Nathan brings his sin to him, how we react. How how does it look like when somebody has sinned and now has to turn and repent? Well, first thing we see is that repentance confesses the full gravity of sin. David has done something 
horribly wicked. And repentance, he shows us, acknowledges responsibility for sin in biblical detail before God. So unlike a Twitter apology that admits to a vague mistake, right? Or a politician who is very, very sorry about the affair. Real repentance, David shows us, gets real. David sinned. But when confronted with his sin, he takes ownership. It was adultery, not an affair. It was a lie, not just misleading. If we're really repenting, we have to come to grips with those sorts of things. You have to use biblical language to describe it. So, really, we have to consider, when we use euphemisms to try and justify our actions, really all that we're doing is insulating our hearts from responsibility and diminishing our opportunity for grace. Now, I found a really interesting current illustration of this. Probably never heard of the guy. I hadn't. His name is Timothy Gogline, I think is how you pronounce it. And he is the former deputy director of the Office of Public Liaison. So in other words, this man was a White House staffer. He was a White House staffer for seven and a half years, seven years. So one of the longest-term staffers in the White House. And he began to do some side jobs where he would write pieces for papers, not for income, but just he's an important guy in Washington, D.C. And if you're, if you're an important guy in D.C., you extend your influence. And so he was writing articles, and he received an email from a reporter who busted him for plagiarism. He wasn't writing the articles. He was stealing them from his hometown paper. And in an interview afterwards, where he was asked to detail what had happened and how he ended up doing what he did, listen to how he says and articulates what happened. Timothy writes, Proverbs is correct. Pride goes before the fall. In my time in the White House, I was becoming a very prideful person. This pride and vanity extended to plagiarizing columns for my hometown newspaper. And pride takes many forms. And one of them is always wanting to be the brightest guy. The one with something interesting to say. I knew what I was doing. And I knew it was wrong. And so when he was confronted with the evidence by email, he said, I told the reporter that it was entirely true. And I was guilty as charged. I had no one to blame but myself. I was directly responsible without excuse. I inflicted as a result of my own sin shame and embarrassment on the president and on my colleagues and mentors. I had violated everything I believed in and was a hypocrite to my wife and children and family. Categorically. So I resigned from the White House that day. sounds a little bit different than what we usually see in the media. And likewise, when David is confronted by Nathan and he pens his public confession, he completely owns his actions. And he completely owns the evil of his actions and the language that he uses. Listen to verse 3. For I know my transgressions. David says, not my mistakes, my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. In verse 14, at the end of the psalm, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He calls it sin, and he names it accurately. He doesn't just couch it in terms like, I committed manslaughter. No, no. There's blood guilt on my hands. 
It wasn't a mistake in judgment. He's not going to muddy things by confessing to a conspiracy to commit murder. David might not have swung the sword, but he gave the order. And in his heart, he knows he wanted Uriah dead. He knows that he stands responsible before the Lord. And so he admits to blood guiltiness. The real name of murder. Uriah's blood, David knows, is literally on his hands. He's stained by it. He's guilty for it. Listen to Spurgeon's comments on this psalm. Learn in confession to be honest with God. Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. What God sees them to be, that do you labor to feel them to be. And with all openness of heart, acknowledge their real character. Observe that David was not evidently oppressed with the heinousness of his sin. Was evidently oppressed with the heinousness of his sin. It's easy to use words, but it is difficult to feel their meaning. Oh, I was prideful. I was angry. I lied. But to feel the weight of those. Spurgeon goes on to say, the 51st Psalm is the photograph of a contrite spirit. Let us seek after the like brokenness of heart. For however excellent our words may be, if our heart is not conscious of the hell-deservingness of sin, we cannot expect to find forgiveness. That's helpful. Showing us that repentance, if it is right and true, confesses the full gravity of sin. Spurgeon hits the nail on the head. It's, it's no good to understate things. And if you understate things, if you try and couch it in, in really kind of padded language like our culture will use, all you're doing is insulating your heart from real conviction. Authentic repentance desires to feel the gravity of the sin. It recognizes that to really change, you have to come to grips with your own depravity, that it, it's coming up out of you. So David shows us, right? It, it's my own transgressions, my own sins. I, I was born in them. That's how David describes it. And he also says this. He wants to have sorrow. He wants to smell the stench of his actions. And so he describes adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, leading an entire nation into sin. He's involving a nation in this cover-up now. An army is involved in murder. In verse 4 he says this, Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Real repentance recognizes that ultimately all sin, first and foremost, is against God. So to grasp the full gravity of our sin, to really repent, to really have sorrow over it, we have to come to grips with the one who we've truly sinned against. And David recognizes in verse 5 that that comes from his own corrupt heart, his own twisted will. It's no cause of circumstance. He did it. While it ended in a man's murder, Uriah's sinned against, right? David recognizes first and foremost that murder was rebellion against the man's creator. So what does this look kind of on the level for us today? Well, 
It means when I get angry with my son Case, I sin against God. So when I yell and I respond harshly, the Bible says that I'm committing murder against my own son in my heart. And it's against God because Case is first God's son. Because Case is made in God's image. And it's against God because I'm called as his father to represent to Case the goodness of fatherhood so that he'll grasp God's nature, that he'll understand that when the Bible says God is his father, that God has a loving disposition towards him. So my anger doesn't just hurt Case. My anger offends God. It wrongs one of God's image bearers. And it distorts God's nature to my four-year-old. And that means that my repentance to Case should make all of that clear. Not just, please forgive me, Case, that I got angry at you. Case, please forgive me because I got angry at you and I've had to ask God for forgiveness of all the things I just described. That's what real repentance does. It confesses the real gravity of sin. Repentance also, second point, expresses brokenness and seeks cleansing. Listen to verse 7. Repentance expresses brokenness and seeks cleansing. This is what David writes in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So what he's saying there is basically this. Real repentance, it goes deeper than regret. Real sorrow over sin is more than just kind of being sorry. When repentance is real, when it's a spirit-induced response to sin, it breaks the heart. And it leaves someone overwhelmed with the need to be made clean. Give you another illustration from my life. One of those moments as a kid that just stands out. I think it was fourth grade. Out at recess. You ever play the game Foursquare? We we had like this huge obsession with Foursquare in fourth grade. And so we'd set up the Foursquare box. And we even did a variation of it where there was a poison circle in the middle. So if you hit it in the middle, that was poison and you were out. And so you, you had to be super careful with how you how you did it, and there was this huge, I mean, this line would be like 30 people deep. So when it got to be your turn for Foursquare, you better win. And you would, if you won the first game, you moved to the, the next square, and eventually you'd be like in the winner's square, and that was the place to be. And if you know anything about me, I'm just a little bit of a competitive person. So competitive things kind of tend to get my juices going, and you know, I'm a really mature fourth grader, so... Here I come, it's my turn, and I'm, I'm making my way to the winner's square. And I hit the ball, and the other person misses it. And we were so intense, and this was such big business, that one of the recess monitors actually oversaw our four-square games. And I believe her name was Mrs. White, pretty sure. And she said I was out. But I was not out! <laughs> In my omniscience, I knew that that ball had not hit the line. I was in. The other person was out. Mrs. White said, you're out. And I flew off the handle. And Mrs. White then said, well, you're not just out, Matthew. 
you can now go to the principal's office. <laughs> so I took the long walk down the hallway to Mr. Mao's office. And that's a scary thing when you're in fourth grade. And so I sat down, and I was just already crafting in my mind how I was going to dampen what had really happened. And so he calls me into his office, and I begin to articulate some of what had happened. Kind of trying to make it so I can get out of it. And he gets done listening. He says, well, thank you for telling me what happened. Now I'm going to go confer with Mrs. White. Oh, no. <laughs> My heart just sinks. Because I know she's going to articulate in greater detail the things that I said. And so he gets up and walks around the desk and is walking down the hallway. And I jump up and I run around and I catch him in the hall before he gets out there. It's, Mr. Mao, Mr. Mao. <laughs> And I, I give him a full confession. But that was a sham repentance. There was no brokenness and no sorrow for the disrespect I'd shown to Mrs. White. There was only fear of reprisal. All I cared about were the consequences. Being caught in sin or feeling the guilt of sin is different than being broken by sin. We all hate getting caught. Nobody likes getting caught. You're not unique and godly if when you get caught, you feel sorry. Everybody feels sorry for getting caught. Repentance goes deeper. It hates the presence of sin itself, not just the effects. And that's a huge difference. The difference between godly sorrow, the broken spirit and contrite heart that David describes, and regret about consequences, that's like the difference between infatuation, and love. On the surface, in some ways, they might seem similar. But when push comes to shove, only the latter, love, holds its course. You want to think rightly about sin, John Owen is a great place to go. This is what he writes. Specifically to this concept of regret and feeling a lack of peace and, and feeling guilty, but not having sorrow. Owen says this, Hatred of sin as sin, not only as galling or disquieting, so not only as something that's bad and something that breaks up the peace that's happening in my life or has consequences, as a sense of love of Christ in the cross. It lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification, so all true repentance and putting sin to death. If you hate sin as sin, Owen says, every evil way, you would be no less watchful against everything that grieves and disquiets the Spirit of God than against that which grieves and disquiets your own soul. It is evident that you contend against sin merely because of your own trouble by it. Would your, would your conscience be quiet under it? You would let it alone. So if you didn't feel guilt... If there weren't consequences, you wouldn't deal with it. Did it not disquiet you, it should not be disquieted by you. Owen is acknowledging real repentance doesn't just wait for consequences. And real repentance isn't just broken over consequences. Real repentance is broken over the nature of sin itself and the nature of sin being against God. And so if all we're doing is regretting the consequences, all we're going to do is get better at hiding our sin. 
you're not really going to repent. You're not really going to change. You're just going to get better at figuring out ways to keep it from public view. I'm not really sorrow, sorrowful about how I treated Mrs. White, what I said to her. And so now, instead of just yelling it at the top of my lungs for all the playground to hear, I just grumble in my heart as I go to the back of the line. I know that was in. It was out. Mrs. White is so wrong. How could you do that to me? Sin's still there. Just not public. Just not getting me sent to Mr. Mal's office. We won't actually be concerned with turning from sin to Christ. Regret and guilt don't affect heart change. And they don't stir up a desire for cleansing. Listen to verse 2. David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, this idea of, of purging and cleansing literally has the idea of being de-sinned, of having the sin wiped off, rubbed off you. Hyssop is the material that they use in the temple when, when they're going through propitiation, when they're propitiating God's wrath. They sprinkle hyssop. So it's this, this purging. You have a leper in this day and age. You take hyssop and you wipe the leper with hyssop to, to cleanse the leper and wipe off the uncleanliness. David's desire is for cleansing that goes to his morrow. And only God has the power to cleanse in this way. David needs a miracle. There's no sacrifice David can give that has the power to really purge his soul of the defilement of sin. And David admits as much in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The aching guilt of sin in David's bones can only be removed, he knows, by the Lord's forgiveness. His transgression is rebellion against God. The iniquity comes from within him, and its rot has robbed David of joy and life. And so he calls upon God to do what only God can do. Verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Wipe them off the page. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Only God has the power to wipe the slate clean. Only God has the power to remove the stain of sin. The imagery of verse 2 of being washed thoroughly is this idea of a stained garment. And the stain goes so deep that you have to wash it again again and again. Only God's cleansing can purge the impurity of sin. And true repentance groans for just that. Not simply the removal of guilt, not just the restoration of peace, longs for a new heart, for pure motives, in addition to a clean slate. Repentance goes further. Because it knows all that, and because David knows only God can grant it, and that it would require a miracle, repentance seeks God's mercy. David is very aware. The adultery could be something he's put to death for. The murder? Why shouldn't he expect to die? His sin deserves punishment in kind. And so he calls out to God for mercy, knowing that only God can set aside punishment, that only God can forgive. And here's the amazing thing about the story. 
God does just that, and he does it immediately. In the context of the story in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David tells the famous parable about the wealthy man with all of his sheep and the poor man with the one sheep, and the wealthy man steals the poor man's one sheep. What should happen? And David just goes off the handle in self-righteousness. You've got to come after that wealthy man. That is wrong. Nathan turns to him and says, you the man. You're that man. And David says to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan says to David, right back to him, the Lord Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We should be looking at that verse and saying, why? How? Where is justice for Uriah? Uriah is a minor character, so we kind of sometimes lose the image that there's a man whose king committed adultery with his wife, and then the king had him put to death. We love David. David's one of our characters in the Bible, right? He's got the sling. He kills Goliath. He's doing all these great things. He writes these psalms. He's the man after God's own heart. We want to see good things happen to David. David killed a man. David should suffer a punishment for killing Uriah. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Where is justice? That's a question we should be asking at every turn in the Old Testament. And we find its answer in one of the most important texts of the New Testament. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, as the true cleansing hyssop that takes away the wrath of God. And then Paul writes this, This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can Nathan respond immediately to David who is... What would we say if there was a super public scandal and we found out the President of the United States had a man murdered to cover up his sin? None of us would be content with a judge, with the prosecutor saying, you did it. The defendant, the president saying, I did, I'm sorry, I'm guilty. And the judge saying, well, thank you for owning up to it. We'll just continue on. We would hound him. Romans 3.25 that passage in 2 Samuel 12, 13, God's justice hangs in the balance in those words. His mercy seems to impugn His holiness. And Paul shows us that it's in Jesus that God's justice and His mercy kiss. He can deal patiently with David's sin. 
he can deal mercifully with ours. Because Jesus bore all the condemnation. Faith finds renewed hope that he does just that. In Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? In verse 14, by canceling the record of death, by canceling the murder of Uriah, the adultery with Bathsheba, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, the fact that David should be put to death. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Faith takes responsibility where unbelief makes excuses. Faith owns sin as sin where unbelief minimizes guilt in fear that God won't forgive if he really knows the true nature of the offense. You know what? God knows anyway. Faith cries out for mercy where unbelief would accuse others. Faith sees sin in all its perversion and knows that God's steadfast love that His abundant mercy are a sufficient cure in Christ. So David starts out in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David doesn't know about Jesus yet. All he knows is the character of his God, that he extends steadfast love, that he extends abundant mercy. And he says, Lord, it is in your power that if you say I'm forgiven, if you say I'm clean, that you can wash me whiter than snow, even though I am a murderer. And David's hope for all of that is met in Jesus. And here's what that means. No one, no one is ever too far gone for God. No sin is too great. You know how often people say, you know, they're, they're grappling with God. They, they want to be forgiven. They, they have a sense, God couldn't forgive this. If if people really knew what I was like, they would, God, God can't forgive this. People on the threshold of belief, the threshold of salvation. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the nature. You ever hear of a man on death row being converted? You get cynical in your heart? <laughs> yeah, converted. That guy's a murderer. So is David. Isaiah 118. This is what the Lord says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be made like wool. I love how Paul David Tripp describes this in his book, which I highly recommend to you, Whiter Than Snow. I come to the Lord with only one appeal. His mercy. I have no other defense. I have no other standing. I have no other hope. I can't escape the reality of my biggest problem. Me. So I appeal to the one thing in life that's sure and will never fail. I appeal to the one thing that guaranteed not only my acceptance with God, but the hope of new beginnings and fresh starts. I appeal on the basis of the greatest gift I have ever or ever will be given. I leave the courtroom of my own defense. 
I come out of hiding and I admit who I am. But I am not afraid because I've been personally and eternally blessed because of what Jesus has done. God looks on me with mercy. It's my only appeal. It's my only source of hope. It's my life. Mercy. Mercy me. If, if you're a believer sitting here today and you've got sin, and secret sin, and you're, you're thinking, I can't bring this out, I can't bring this to light, I can't confess this, I can't repent of it. How's God going to deal with it? Jesus is how he can deal with it. He will pour out mercy on you. If you're sitting here today, maybe you're a young person, Maybe you're an unconverted believer. You've professed Jesus for years, but you know in your heart of hearts you're not converted. Maybe you just walked in here and you've been wrestling with stuff. Maybe somebody invited you and you're wondering, what's this all about? Can I, can I really find grace? You can. Jesus can wash you whiter than snow. And that is your only hope. And the incredible thing about that, what I love about this, is here, here's what David says. So he says all this, and in verse 13 he says, If you do all of this, Lord, if you forgive me, if you grant mercy, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David's not saying, Lord, if you forgive me, I am going to go out there and be super self-righteous. And I am going to tell everybody how they're evil and they're messed up and I've got it all together. David's saying, no, Lord. If you wash me, if you cleanse me, I will tell fellow sinners of the nature of my God. I will tell people who don't know Jesus Jesus died for sinners. He shed his blood to save sinners. That God's love goes deeper than your sin. That you can be forgiven. I want to have that kind of culture here at Providence. That messed up, broken people can walk in here and they can sense our reflection of that aspect of God's character. If David walks in as the murderer, could we love him? Could we extend mercy? Could we extend Jesus to that person? Finally, be brief here. Repentance longs for the restoration of relationship. The whole point in this psalm, in this song of penitence, is that David is crying out for what he's lost. Not innocence, but relationship. Because David knows relationship is where joy is to be found. Look at the progression of the psalm in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Implication, 
My joy is gone. There is gloom around me. My guilt and my condemnation hang over my head. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I don't want the takeaway of this message to be some rote biblical process of repentance. I was taking really careful notes on Sunday. And this is step 1A and step 1B and step 1C. And then if you look, there's a couple sub-points to step 1C that you have to go through in the process of biblical repentance. And that's just step 1. There's still steps 2, 3, and 4. And that's what biblical repentance looks like. I think the things we've touched on in this message are things we need to follow and seek if we're seeking real repentance. But that's not the main point. In our twisted brokenness, we can follow all the rules and miss the Redeemer. That's what I want us to see. The greatest goal of our repentance must always be a longing for the restoration of relationship. True repentance doesn't seek redemption as the be-all, end-all. It seeks the Redeemer as the be-all, end-all of redemption. It longs for mercy and grace so that it can turn to the arms of mercy and grace. When David cries out to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he isn't asking merely to be saved. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David is saying, I'm not just asking for salvation. I'm not just asking for joy. I'm asking for the source of salvation's joy. David is asking for God. David has seen the danger of false repentance. He has seen it up close and personal. He is God's anointed because the first anointed was full of false repentance. King Saul precedes David and does evil before God. And he took his cues, Saul did, from the school of minimizing sin, from the school of blame shifting. David has seen with his own eyes in the throne room as he's called to play the harp for Saul and he's just being oppressed, he's hurling spears at David. David has seen the consequence of false repentance. And it's not just a lack of forgiveness and guilt that hung over Saul. David witnessed something far worse. The end result of a lack of repentance. In 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. In John 15, 6, Jesus says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But that is also the great hope of this psalm. Where there is repentance, there is restoration for the guilty. In Christ, God sets aside our sin so that by faith and our union with Christ that we have through faith, we can be made white as snow so that we will be made fit for His presence. God has mercy on the broken. This text, this psalm is for broken people. This is for people 
who walk with a limp. This is for people who have guilt hanging on their backs. This is for people who want God but feel like they can't come. God has mercy on the broken and contrite heart. And he does it according to his steadfast love. Because there is no sin too serious, there is no stain too deep that those who turn to Jesus can't be cleansed. His mercy is so great that he forgives guilt and restores joy. His mercy is so great that he gives us himself.